Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast and thank you for joining us for this bite-sized podcast. I had a fabulous conversation with Kate Mason and together we spoke about popping our brave plates on and the fact that we are always learning. So Dr. Kate Mason is a storytelling debate champion who elevates women's communication through her coaching program Amplify. Um, Kate founded her own company Hedgehog and Fox and she works with startups and major global brands across the US, Australia and Asia. It's a brilliant conversation. I hope you enjoy meeting Kate as much as I did. If you want to hear the full conversation, you can just look up Kate and find the conversation that we had together. Enjoy the chat. So who are you who you are? You know, go back even before. So you've done a PhD in English. Mm -hmm. Why are you who you are? What came before that? Wow, what a question. (laughs) Um, I suppose I've always been motivated by curiosity and following things I really loved. Um, I, and, and I suppose that goes back to when I was quite young as well, but certainly from university onwards, I started off doing an arts and law degree, thinking very clearly I'll, I'll probably be a barrister. That was an early wish. And I got to law school and realised, I don't think I'm going to enjoy practising law. I don't think it's for me. I love some of the ways of thinking, um, but it didn't resonate with me in the way that I had hoped. Mm. So I did my honours in English and thought that's actually where my passion really is. I love writing. I love uh, finding patterns between different things and literature. And so that I suppose in some narrow sense led me to think, well, that's what I will do. I'll be, you know, a a, a lecturer um, in English and you get there by doing a PhD. So at at that time it was quite transactional, quite sort of linear or or so I thought. Um, And quite delightfully, I've been opened up to a lot more different directions, but always led, I think, with that curiosity and with staying fairly true to things that I thought both that I was good at and that I could kind of be useful in. I think that's a really important uh, conversation because, you know, a lot of people think there's just one path to get to where they want to go and things like that. And so mm. as you look back on, you know, where, where you are now with your own business, and there's lots of questions I want to ask about that, but mm. when you look at where you are right now, does it, in retrospect, does it seem you were always heading there or, you know, it's- like... It's so funny you say that. I was just talking to someone this morning and and, uh, saying I could not have predicted this path in the sense of imagining it when I was really young. Mm. But if I do look backwards, yes, everything I've done has sort of been this strangely appropriate building block. And and maybe everyone says that in their career. I I don't know. But um, I think the first one for me was actually I started debating when I was really young. And that sort of fueled this way of thinking and, um, again, curiosity to learn things, but also strategy to kind of how to how to put them together in this really compelling way. And uh, that's exactly what I do now. And I started learning that when I was 10. So in some ways, these beautiful patterns kind of recur over time, you know, with, I think, people's careers and choices. And you start realizing, oh, that's not just a hobby or something I like it's actually something that's quite integral to me or how I think and function and actually I'd like to do that professionally if I can. 
And I just wonder in that context, a lot of the things that have come up in conversations I've had is that there comes a certain point where, um, you know, highly talented females are opting out of that sort of corporate structure in some mm. cases to do their own thing, um, you know, and there's lots of lots of different avenues open to people. But was that your experience? Like, were you opting were you opting out? Was there a, a reason for wanting to exit the sort of corporate space? Or was it, I guess that's the tension I'm keen to just understand in your decisions. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hard to disaggregate that actually in hindsight. I think there was probably a lot of threads leading up to it. Uh, one was uh, the autonomy and flexibility that I would have running my own shop is yeah. I think unparalleled. And at that time I'd had one, I'd had both my children. And so actually I'd had one child when I started the business and I knew I was in planning to have another. Yeah. And so that was definitely part of it, which was could I construct a life that let me sort of leverage all the things that I wanted to do in a way that I wanted to do them. Mm -hmm. So I don't think corporate level or high level roles necessarily offer that. And that's for some people, they don't necessarily want that. So that's also fine. Yeah. Um, but for me, that was something I was definitely grappling with. And then the second, so that would, I suppose, be on the life sort of social side of things. And on the um, professional side of things, I knew I particularly loved certain aspects of my roles. So the last two in-house roles I had had, I was the first marketing or comms hire. And I love that initial, how do we build out this architecture? What do we need to be saying? How should we position ourselves? Mm. Um, much more than I enjoyed other parts of my role. Now, it wasn't to say I wasn't good at those other parts of those roles. Crisis comms is, is one of the things that I think I was actually quite good at. I just didn't love it. Yeah. I didn't get the energy from it that I think some people do. Uh, so on the professional side, I really wondered, could I narrow it down to those real areas of, I thought, expertise, but also the ones that gave me a lot of energy. Um, and that, that doesn't happen in-house very often. You know, in-house you're constantly pulled between lots of different poles. And, and again, I spent many years doing that and enjoying it, but I wondered if I could narrow it down, would that give me some sort of ability to thrive more? And that, so that was the thesis, I suppose, going into it. And I think I've proven that out at least to myself that yes you can do the narrowing and certainly it's given me endless joy and I just you know I'd love to get into into it with you in terms of what are the core um you know are there core themes you're helping people with yeah it's such a great question and such a huge huge ground so um it actually funnily enough goes back to my debating years which is a Debating is a pretty male-dominated um, area. And for a period of my early um, coaching and training, I didn't have a lot of women to look to in that space. So I would just emulate what my male coaches were doing or what male peers were doing. And I would notice in feedback, I would get comments like, oh, too aggressive, or you can't be too angry all the time. And the boys were doing exactly the same thing and not getting that feedback. So I think fairly early on, I noticed there is a difference in the way that women and men persuade. Mm. And over time, I think I've spent a lot of time studying and thinking about what are those differences and how can we leverage them to our own benefit? So, for example, we talk about things that are coded male behaviour. So it's not that all men do these, but we think about them coded male. And that's things like having a deeper, louder voice. Um, it's things like 
well, he must be authoritative because he sort of said it and banged the table, right? So there's there's a whole list of things that are male coded and then the feminine coded are much more around like nurturing, caretaking, collaborative, communal. Um, and we all shift between those all the time. But I think in terms of communication, uh, there's different ways in which we all reach for those. And what I started realising in working with founders and CEOs, particularly in, in the companies I would do strategy work for, were the different ways in which um, women were communicating and still do, um, that I felt was somewhat could undersell what they were doing. So did you change your style? You know, if I go back to noticing that you were getting called out for being aggressive and things like that, were, you know, were those changes that, that um, people can make? Are they subtle changes? Are they, you know? Yeah, I, I think so. And look, I'm very careful in sort of talking about change because there's also a, a very relevant sort of school of thought of like, you know, women shouldn't have to change what we're doing. Our workplace should sort of accommodate that. So I certainly don't advocate um, I've got a magic wand and I'm going to sort of make you all over in a different image. It's much more about are there behaviours that might be undermining what you're trying to achieve and is there an authentic way to communicate a sense of yourself um, with power, with authority, right, mm -hmm. that maybe you hadn't kind of found yet. So I guess what I mean by that is all of the women I work with are hyper-talented, hyper-credentialed, and yet some of them will go into a meeting and say, oh, I'm not sure if I have got this right or I'm not really the expert here, but or lots and lots of caveats. Could I just take a minute of your time instead of, you know, wanting to actually have a meeting? We don't want to take up the space or the time. And there's a lot of sort of minimising behaviours that we do that are sort of enculturated. Mm. And I think sometimes it's just about bringing those to the surface and saying, let's think about what they do. Let's think about the impact that they have. And you might or might not want to add or remove something from what you're doing to sort of turn those volume knobs up, if you like. Mm. Um, so to answer your question more properly about myself, yes, I did become less aggressive um, I, for a couple of reasons, one being one note all the time when you're presenting is bad. So, you know, being able to harness that aggression or use it um, more effectively at different times. So I think I definitely have it in my toolkit, but I probably don't rely on it anymore as, as much. Um, and secondly, yeah, I did notice that there were different standards for female speakers. So what I'd say is I probably became more of me. Mm -hmm. um, rather than a template of my male peers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's sort of how I approach the philosophy behind Amplify, which is if you're someone who has a sense of humour, let's see how we can bring that out into your professional self. If you're someone who's really serious, let's see how we bring that out into you. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where your baseline is, but let's make it a version of yourself that you feel really like this is a version of me that I'm excited to communicate outwardly. I love that. I'm just wondering, it just, you know, prompted into my head as you were talking then. Have you had a chance to see any of um, Annabelle Crabbe's misrepresented? Oh, I haven't. It's on my list. I'm so excited to, yeah. Um, I, I, I watched it over the weekend and, um, you know, just loved it and it raised so many questions. But one that just um, jumps to mind as you were speaking was the term um, gender deafness. 
And what referring to the fact that um, a lot of females share this, that they can sit in a room and that they'll put an idea forward and that idea is doesn't appear to have been heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, it might be five or 10 minutes later, a very same idea is put on the table by a male and all of a sudden it's a wonderful idea. Does that, is that part of the conversations? Do you help people with that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very common, um, unfortunately, a very common experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, even sometimes it's just like actually being heard at the table. I think we, we generally have softer voices. We generally sit back in a chair, you know, or we sit really forward and squash our diaphragm. There's lots of even just practical reasons um, that sometimes we're not heard at a table. And then, as you say, there's the extra level of we're not listened to, right, which is as distinct from being heard in the first instance. So uh, that's a very common one. We talk a lot about strategies like amplification, which came out of the Obama White House, which is the idea of another ally in the room, woman or man, saying, actually, I think Melissa raised that point or Melissa, let's get back to what you were saying mm-hmm. and sort of allocating credit up to the person who might have made that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I encourage all leaders, whatever, um, whatever position they are in, to be able to do that and sort of confidently advocate for each other because in doing so creates a space that everyone becomes a lot more mindful of, ah, oh, yeah, that was her idea, um, which I think is really important for lots of reasons. So negotiating. Mm. um, I know from our conversation before that you sit in a a very small percentage of females who can answer this question as a yes. And that is, um, I understand you have negotiated for your salary on your journey. (laughs) I know. I it's so sad that that answer is the way it is, isn't it? That that's an unusual thing to point out. Mm-hmm. I would love to live in a world that that was just a given. We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> I think so. I think so. We're on the way. Um, I Yes, I, I do negotiate. So my philosophy on negotiation is that, in fact, if you Google image search the word negotiation, the picture that comes up is the first 20 or so images are men in suits shaking hands across a table, right? So it is coded at the outset. That word is adversarial, it's masculine, it's confrontational. It's things that naturally don't sound fun to engage in, right? And we code, we, we add a layer to that of, well, I don't want them to not like me. I don't want to be difficult. I don't really know them well enough to have this conversation. And of course, this feels like an insurmountable thing, right? Yeah. It feels like I can't Maybe possibly. Not, they'd pay me more if I was worth it. I, I don't even start on imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a, so much data around the fact that women negotiate less than men. But the data that I find really interesting is that when we talk about who negotiates best hands down, it's women, but only when they're negotiating on behalf of someone else. Right. So women bosses, for example, will get a much better outcome for their team members, the data shows, than a male boss will for their team. Mm. And again, you've got to go back to those behaviours coded as feminine, right, that that's a communal, um, compassionate, caretaking sort of mode coming through. 
So I think the first step before we even think about negotiating for a salary is thinking about negotiation as an activity that we do all the time. We negotiate with our partners. Can you come home at seven instead of eight, right? We negotiate all sorts of things in our daily life. And we don't think of them as like a capital N negotiation because we think of them as conversations. Mm. But I'm a really big proponent of thinking about that all the time. I need somebody, I need more resources for my team. I need to take a day off. I need to, all these requests are in fact negotiations, right? I'm showing you this and I'm giving you that in return. Mm -hmm. So trying to get out of the idea that negotiating only happens when you go for a job or buy a car is a really first important step. And then it's about thinking, how can I negotiate in a way that feels authentic to me? Right. So for me, that has always been, I'm going to be super honest about where everything is. I'm going to be very, very transparent. I'm going to be very collaborative. So you might, in my case, I would use language sort of as, um, thanks so much for the opportunity. This looks like an incredibly exciting role. I can't wait to get started. On the tactics, the the floor that I need to reach is X. is there any way you can help me get there? What can we do to get there? I'll sign today, mm. right? I'm ready. So there's automatically a sense of transparency, of, of community around that and collaboration. I'm not being, quote, difficult. I'm just telling you this is my situation and I'm ready to get moving. I'm not trying to stall. So um, I would love your perspective on, you know, we're not seeing that needle move fast enough with regards to leadership positions. Um, I don't know how fast enough is good enough, but it's more the point that it's stalled um, Mm. in terms of progress. What's your perspective on that, Kate? Oh, I wish I had the answer. My perspective, I suppose, comes from a working parent's perspective which is that structural institutions are badly designed for women who want to have a family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, the fact that school finishes at three o'clock is a bit ridiculous, right? And it's not to say that school should finish at 8pm. It's just to say that things are not set up. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of things institutionally and structurally that are not ready um, in that capacity. Childcare is not subsidised in a way that it needs to be. Um, so in, in certainly in terms of that working family journey, that's not set up, I think, for success um, mm. for a lot of women. For some women, it is. But I think when we look across the spectrum, there's lots of reasons why people might leave for family reasons in particular. Um, the second is I think that those structures favour um, modes of working that we're seeing, I think, with COVID being in flux. So things like FaceTime at the office it's not reasonable parent or no to not be able to go to the bank or the post office in your work day if you yeah. need to get that done, right? Yeah. So it's, it's not reasonable to say you couldn't work from somewhere else on a Friday if that helped you out in your life um, or that you couldn't go to a medical appointment, et cetera. And I think we're realising that, that this concept of FaceTime or being, you know, on is pretty flexible and different. And I'm, I'm hopeful that COVID has kind of brought that to the fore a little bit and people are understanding that there's different ways of working but I think it's the inflexibility of those institutions that is making people men and women actually decide that they might not be for me you know I'm curious as to uh, I think it's so important we keep having these conversations and diversity is a really broad subject 
the lens that I'm interested in is more of a gender lens. Mm. You know, what, what questions should we be asking about diversity? Oh, that's such a good one. I mean, I think most people realise or understand that diverse teams have better outcomes. I, I think that's becoming more of a fact um, for so many reasons and all the data points to that being the case. Mm. So it's actually a better business decision to have diverse teams. It's actually saves you time and money. We look at all the launches, particularly in my world in terms of strategy and in business, we look at all the launches that you haven't asked a woman about, for example, or you haven't asked a person of colour about before you launched and there's a huge error and there's a lot that goes into course correcting the brand or the brand damage, the blowback. Mm. Um, so had you sat down with any number of different constituencies, it might be different. Um, I always remember that my Apple watch or the, the I had a, a smart watch at some point that when I would go walking with a stroller, it would say I was cycling <laughs> and there was no way to say I was walking with my hand on a stroller, right? Had you asked a mother to wear that device, you would have had a really different outcome. So I think the conversation is shifting from should we have diverse teams to it's probably a good thing. The next part of the thing where we're focused on now is how do we get there? And I think when you hear pipeline problem, that's wrong. There's no pipeline problem. We're all here and ready. It's just about imagining people looking a little bit different than maybe what you had in mind. And mm -hmm. that works across all lenses, gender included. Um, and, and really thinking, well, those, those experiences may not be mine or they may not be recognisable to me in my sort of traditional pattern recognition, but what might that person be able to bring that I don't have? That's, I think, the key. Just as we look for, well, I'm more strategic, I need somebody to help me on the operations, et cetera, I'm more white and I need somebody to help me out from this different perspective or I'm a man and I need you know, a, a female voice on my team, et cetera. I think that that's where we're, the new sort of frontier that we're thinking about. Kate, how important have kind of networks and mentors been on your journey? Hugely. Uh, I am really averse, I think, to the, uh, the word networking. Yeah. I find it... Uh, I, I sort of imagine it to be a bit of a sort of smarmy, you know, standing around at a cocktail party that I don't want to be at <laughs> kind of endeavour. I immediately uh, want to Google the image for networking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, that's exactly what it brings to mind. It feels a bit yucky. Uh, but the people that I have met that I have loved and learned from, if I think of them as my network, uh, I think that's really been mainly the joy of work for me mm. is finding people who are exceptional at what they do and becoming friends and trying to learn from them, if not friends, close colleagues, you know, and trying to see, wow, I love the way they solve that problem. And certainly those people in my life have been the ones that I've been able to be friends with or have mentored me either intentionally or accidentally uh, have been real guiding forces in people that I would ring and run a decision past, um, people that I would trust a really clear judgment on, on something I wanted to do or a decision I wanted to make. Uh, I, 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 they wouldn't influence that decision to the extent that I wouldn't change my behaviour, but I love to have their input into how I'm thinking about something. And they may well change my mind on, on what I'm going to do, but that would be because of 
I, I trust them in, implicitly as well. One of the, um, you know, just joys of doing these conversations, and I think it really resonated with people last time round, was kind of seeing that, you know, I'm speaking to all these people that have ticked all these incredible boxes in terms of mm. success and um, but all of us have those moments where doubts come up and, you know, you referenced imposter syndrome before and it, it, it could be that, um, mm. you know, but it's certainly that voice inside that's sort of maybe holding you back from doing something or taking a step. Have there been points where you've had to overcome that sort of voice and you know if you hear a voice what's it saying to you and how do you how do you use that absolutely that voice is probably the loudest sometimes I think for all of us at different times you know we, we remember the one negative piece of feedback and not the 50 pieces of positive don't we so yeah. that that's a really common uh, in my experience with talking to folks I think that's really common um, I have learned to address that voice and actually try and have a conversation with it so really say when that voice of like, you can't do it, it's scary, it's going to be a big audience or this is a big client, what do you think you're doing? Or whatever that doubt looks like to different people, but certainly for myself, I say, thanks so much for alerting me <laughs> to the fact you're right. This is big. This is scary. I really appreciate you flagging it. I've thought about it. I'm still going to do it. But thanks again for reaching out with your thoughts. <laughs> so kind of treating it as like a, an external um, thing. I found when I've ignored the voice and just tried to battle through, for me, it made my anxiety worse, right? Because I would then be anxious about being anxious. <laughs> so I would just now take it on and say, great call. This is scary. And here's what we're going to do about it. So sort of present back a plan to the voice. And it's a pretty good way of making at least my voice sit quietly for a little while. When I ask you about your most vulnerable moment, what springs to mind for you? Oh, lots. <laughs> I had uh, last year was probably uh, on a personal level, one of them. I had uh, an upcoming surgery that I knew was quite big mm. and I knew would have quite significant recovery and rehab and as somebody and it's interesting this is brave feminine leadership as someone who I think self-identifies as brave I found this especially confronting because I was really scared mm. I just kept feeling scared about it and I didn't feel brave at all I just kept thinking this is going to be really hard it's going to be painful it's going to be hard to recover from I don't want to do it I have to do it and I'm, I circle back to being scared again and I was actually talking to my therapist, who's a, I almost said friend there, where I, I think he's amazing. And I explained this. I said, well, I'm actually just really annoyed. Like I'm supposed to be brave and I'm feeling only fear. And he sort of smiled in a way and he said, do you think warriors in battle, you know, when they ran into a battle, do you think they didn't feel scared? Mm. And I suddenly kind of put together that fear is actually a necessary precondition for bravery, right? Mm. We, we, can't, we can't be brave unless there's something to sort of overcome or to, um, uh, yeah, to overcome. And that made the fear seem totally in context. For one, it was fairly rational in fairness, like it was scary. Do you, um, if I throw the terms at you, confidence and courage, 
what what comes up courage i think um courage i think a lot about in terms of my children i suppose in that i'm always kind of coaching them around um give it a go just try you know and it's really it's really wonderful to be courageous i don't care about the outcome i don't mind if you win it or lose it or you know fall over it's just about giving it a go and i think that is something that's quite natural in childhood and we lose it you know we're less we're less likely to want to get on a bike for a first time at 40 than we were when we were four and i kind of think a lot about as i'm saying things to them how relevant some of those things are to us in the professional world as well mm -hmm. that that courage is something we have to practice and we have to be doing all the time even in little ways to sort of teach ourselves it's still okay we can still wobble you know we can still make a mistake we can call it out we can own it we can move on it's not the end of the world and i think that resilience is something that especially high achievers can lose a little bit because they can narrow down to, well, I only want to do things where I know I'll get a good outcome. Mm. And that's a really limiting self-belief, I think. And it's definitely one that I've embodied at different times in my life. But when we start realizing I'm terrible at this, this is great. You know, this is, this is, it's really good for me to be having a moment of failure because it's going to enable me to look at things in a really different way or teach me something I hadn't come up against. So you're looking at courage almost as a muscle in terms of, you know, keep using it. What's next on your list in terms of uh, the next courageous thing you're going to do? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I haven't thought about a courage list, but I obviously need to write one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do think it's a muscle. And I think uh, it's really important, you know, they say, well, you'll do one thing a day that scares you. Well, I think that's a little bit impossible sometimes. <laughs> sometimes the days are just getting stuff done. But uh, certainly going into, I suppose my courage is I think I'm learning slowly to be more flexible mm. and to see that sometimes opportunities come that don't necessarily look like they fit a certain um, box or a certain sort of way that I might have thought about something but actually there's genius and power in sort of exploring those and and brainstorming something new or coming up with a different thought um, and it's the flexibility I think to have for me to think about that has been really quite joyful. Yeah, totally. Kate, I would love to ask you a question that I ask everybody in the series, which is, and we've touched on, on bits of it today, but mm. from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like and does it need to change? I've thought about this because I've listened to some other episodes and I've wondered how would I answer that? I think leadership is such a personal question and I don't think there's a template that's going to work for everybody. And I say that because I work with leaders who are shy, who are extroverted, who are energised, who are calm, and all of them have their own patterns of doing it. And then I think you layer in feminine and that, again, gives you a whole gradient sort of that people self-identify along. So I suppose the brave part, I think the other two sections are very personal and I wouldn't want to sort of influence those. I would encourage people to find where they sit comfortably on those um, spectrum. I think the brave part 
is a really exciting acknowledgement that, as I said before, bravery requires fear. Mm. And that is, I think, a really enabling lens in any type of leadership position. And I, I use that really broadly, whether you're a CEO or a junior manager, right? You're, you're in control of how you lead your own self in that organisation. Mm. And knowing that everybody is facing something they don't want to deal with or they are afraid of at any level and sort of making that much more normalised. I think we have a tendency, and I certainly have in my career, to look upward and think, well, they must have it all figured out. And I think the most lovely thing about working with leaders is that I realise nobody has it figured out. Mm. And in fact, we're all kind of grappling with something difficult. And, and I often ask the question when I'm talking to folks, well, what's keeping you up at night at the moment? Like, what's the, the thing you'd love to be able to fix? And the answer is usually everything. Everything keeps me up at night, right? Like, I'm, I'm a startup founder. What am I not worried about? Yeah. So normalising a little bit of that discussion that nobody's got it, quote, figured out. Um, we're all kind of in that process of learning and working it out. But I think for me, at least, the bravery side of things gives you a bit of licence mm. to have your P plates on, right? We're, we've got B, maybe B plates for bravery, you know. We're, we're all trying to figure it out as we go and, and giving ourselves the opportunity to use it as a muscle, as I said, I think is a really great practice. Thanks so much for listening. If you've loved these conversations and you want to join in and be part of the Brave Feminine Leadership community and fill yourself up with inspiration, there are lots of ways you can find us. Our website is bravefeminineleadership.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook if you look at at Brave Feminine Leadership. Or find us on LinkedIn and connect and become part of an incredible community of senior professionals. Come and join us. Can't wait to see you there.